Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. This pandemic we're in highlights how much we depend on healthcare workers. But trust in the medical system is not a given, especially if you or someone in your family has a disability. Ask anyone in the disabled community and you will likely hear experiences of bias or trouble accessing care. Coming up where we live, we talk with the Center for Public Integrity, which reported on policies in 25 states, including Connecticut, that may affect the health care people with disabilities receive during this COVID-19 crisis. Is someone in your family living with a disability? How concerned are you if he or she must be hospitalized during this pandemic? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, nearly 5,000 people in Connecticut live in public and private residential settings for adults with disabilities. That's according to the state. And as of Wednesday, the Department of Developmental Services, or DDS, says 111 people in publicly run and private residential settings or group homes have tested positive for COVID-19. Seven of them have died. Today, where we live, what plans are in place to protect adults with disabilities from the coronavirus and the workers who take care of them? Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. I want to welcome our first guest to the show via Zoom. Jim Welsh is lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut. This is a nonprofit that advocates for civil and human rights of Connecticut residents with disabilities. Jim, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Uh, first off, tell us a little bit about how your organization, um, the uh, the work that you do, has shifted because of COVID-19. What have you been doing in the last month? Well, I think it's been a, a remarkable shift because of COVID-19. Um, we are uh, focusing on really the care and treatment of folks uh, with disabilities within this crisis. Uh, it has kind of turned our business on its head, but we still are looking at uh, how are people living, how are they coping with um, uh, the, the pandemic, uh, how are their, the support staff that they have coping with this, and are their rights being secured to adequate and appropriate, not just healthcare treatment, but to the services and supports that they they need to live daily. Um, what it, it's a major, it's, a, it's an impact, but it, it, what we use, our staff are monitoring both individuals and facilities throughout the state, uh, not just in the uh, intellectual disability world, but mental health and other disabilities. And that's important uh, to uh, mention. So what are you hearing from families, also from caregivers, as you look at, uh, again, the care being given to adults with disabilities uh, living in, whether it's a psychiatric uh, facility, as you mentioned, or uh, these group homes? Um, you know, it's, we've tried, we've reached out, I mean, from certainly from families uh, of folks in, in, in group homes, and, which are small residential settings or community living arrangements. Um, 
the first thing was the restriction on visitation. That was uh, it came down from the governor's original declaration and then carried out by an order of the Commissioner of Developmental Services. And that's difficult to deal with if you have a, a routine of visiting or taking someone out on Saturday for lunch. Um, but I think most uh, parents and family members that I've, I've spoke to understand that because they're facing the same restrictions in their own lives. That was the, that was the first thing. And then there is real concern about uh, if their uh, loved, if the person, a family member's loved one has to go to a hospital, what, what will happen? Usually, don't they have someone with them? Um, the, the Department of Developmental Services, uh, at least in the providers I've talked to, injected some, some significant additional resources in March and April payments, both for uh, protective uh, equipment as well as assuring staffing and that's that's the important thing once the once the residents are hunkered down like the rest of us uh you still have shifts of staff who have to take all the precautions coming in and out of out of uh, these residential settings and i think that's uh, that's a concern for staff uh the the, the residents are are relatively safe but it's, it's what's brought into brought into the setting so there's where the precautions are so ppe is important uh, screening staff when they come in. One provider I spoke with does both uh, temperature and uh, pulse oximeter oxygen saturation. It kind of gets as some benchmarks. Is someone symptomatic? Um, so that those are those are the concerns that I, I've heard. And also, it's routine of you know, uh, like all of us, uh, people with disabilities have a routine involves work and may not have as, as a complete understanding of the pandemic why they can't go to work or they're Day activity or their social activities, and that's uh, you know that is that is a concern that you know we want to make sure that people are engaged throughout the day. So uh, Jim, and have a quality of life. So Jim, I wanted to ask: uh, we hear again where there are healthcare workers in hospital settings who may not have the enough PPE, personal protective equipment. Do we know of all of the private residential settings that contract with the state? Do they have adequate equipment? Uh, that is one of our ongoing uh, monitoring efforts uh, to date. Uh, you know, at least the information I have is that there has been adequate PPE, um, but that's you know that's not we're we're continuing to sample that across the state. So I can't say definitively that everyone does. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Rick's calling in from the Kennedy Center. Rick, you're on the show. Thanks for calling in. Tell us briefly, what is the Kennedy Center? Good morning. Thank you. Um, the Kennedy Center is in our 69th year of providing services to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as other disabilities. We're operating um, in Fairfield and New Haven counties predominantly, but also serve 110 communities throughout the state with a variety of employment and mobility-related services for people who have disabilities. We so, operate a series of group homes. We have individuals residing in their own apartments. We support people uh, during the daytime in 29-day sites throughout the communities and also provide in-home supports to family members. Do you have clients or residents uh, that have tested positive for COVID? And how are you, uh, again, dealing with that? We, we do. So, so we have 
um, currently five individuals that we support um, that are hospitalized after having tested positive. Uh, we have a six-person tested positive that is asymptomatic. We have closed down a group home and relocated um, a few of the folks that were left in that site to an alternate site so that we could get in and do a whole house cleaning and disinfecting. Um, we have uh, provided um, enhancements to our staffing. Uh, we've got the ability, we, we purchased some PPE on our own because we were at the bottom of the list at the state level uh, for getting and obtaining PPE. Um, we also have about uh, nine staff members that have tested positive with two that have been hospitalized uh, through today. Um, and we, we would anticipate that that number would continue to grow. Um, like your, your prior guest, we're operating on alternating staffing um, for three shifts throughout the day. We have uh, implemented various front door protocols. We've implemented COVID positive protocols, masks on at all times. Those masks are, in most cases, homemade because of the lack of PPE. But in the last two weeks, our organization has created a contact with a woman-owned small business who has manufacturing facilities that manufacture garments, and they've converted their factories to PPE. So we mm -hmm. now have a supply chain that we have created where we are the distributor here in Connecticut, and we are obtaining surgical masks, N95s, the newly authorized KN95, the FDA authorized the use of KN95 masks a couple of weeks ago, and we also have disposable three-ply masks that most people mm -hmm. see as a surgical mask. Um, well, we well, have Rick, the ability to obtain Rick, millions of those. Yeah, Rick, that's really good to hear that you've been able to get that equipment through this collaboration. But something that you said, I wanted to bring Jim Welsh back into the conversation from Disability Rights Connecticut. Why are these workers who work at these private residential settings and group homes, why are they at the bottom of the list, as he mentions, for PPE? Because they have direct contact uh, with uh, adults with disabilities, again, who they also need to make sure they aren't uh, bringing in uh, this uh, virus and also keeping them safe as well. Well, uh, I, certainly from what I understand, the, you know, DDS, the department has, has endeavored to, to increase funding, but procurement is has been the issue. I'm, I'm glad to see what Kennedy Center and, and other providers I've talked to have gone out of their way to, to find supply channels. Not surprisingly, the, the, perhaps, you know, First responders, EMTs, and hospital workers, uh, we've, we've seen the problem with PE nationwide, even in those settings. Um, so it's, I, I think that if you, if you get in there and hopefully the supply chain is getting better, but it's, it, it, the first responders and hospitals were probably the first to get uh, uh, targeted by any, any, with any state involvement in procurement. 
Uh, before we head to break, uh, Jim Welsh, for our listeners, again, who have loved ones who have disabilities, who may, may not live with them, but they worry that they may get sick and they need to go to the hospital, what should they make sure their loved one has with them, whether it's a, a, a letter or to, just to prepare so that the healthcare workers that uh, respond to them know about uh, this person as well as the rights that they have? Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, Lucy. I mean, people should have information that's on them, particularly in residential settings. Some providers that, that, I, that I highly recommend is have a what's called a go bag, and that's mm. a, a bag of that includes PPE for staff, that includes uh, PPE for the individual, uh, as well as information, critical medical medical information, and communication information, um, uh, and and things that you know they want known. Uh, our our website. If you go to DRCT, we have extensive resources, uh, uh, Disability Rights Connecticut, about what you should. You know, you could write on your body with a permanent marker, "I want life life saving treatment." Um, complete an, an accommodations request form to bring with you to the hospital. The things you need to be accommodated. The the commissioner or the Department of, of Developmental Services for, for folks in that system has provided a letter that. Uh, then you know I'm I'm happy to see which which identifies that the needs of the individual noted above require support person to accompany him or her while in the hospital. That would normally not be the case, and in the case that, where this was tested recently, signed by the, the clinical director of, of DDS, uh, it was useful and allowed a support person who needed to be there to accommodate uh, the, the person person as a patient in the hospital. Um, I, I would encourage people to go to the website, uh, certainly give permission verbally or pre-written for medical staff to communicate with family members or friends who help the individual make decisions. So even if you can't be present, that they that it's known who is your who is a contact and who helps uh, support you and make decisions uh, while you're in the hospital. That's really stark that you mentioned that individuals should write on their bodies with permanent marker, I want life-saving treatment. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk with a reporter with the Center um, for Public Integrity about hospital policies and how, again, people that live with disabilities, how uh, they can't feel 100% assured that when they go to the hospital that uh, they will get the same equal treatment as others who are not disabled. We're going to talk more about that coming up here on Where We Live. My guest today, Jim Welsh, lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut, again, a nonprofit that advocates for civil and human rights of Connecticut residents with disabilities. You can join our conversation too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Are you the parent of an adult with disabilities? What concerns do you have about his or her care during this COVID-19 crisis? We want to hear from you.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're focusing our conversation today on the disabled community and learning about the concerns advocates and caregivers have to keep adults with disabilities safe from COVID-19. Now, do you work at a public or private group home for adults with disabilities? Do you have the equipment to stay healthy while also caring for the residents? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Joining us on Zoom again is my guest, Jim Welsh, lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut. And on the phone now is Barry Simon. He's president and CEO of Oak Hill. It's the largest private provider of services to people with disabilities with 70 group homes across Connecticut. Barry, welcome to our show. So hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I asked Jim what he's been hearing from uh, parents and caregivers during this pandemic as someone who leads this provider service for people with disabilities, 70 group homes, as I mentioned. Uh, How have you been responding? So, uh, you know, I think uh, as all of us did, you know, immediately we were in a bit of uh, shock as this was uh, coming forward. But, uh, you know, our our staff uh, have really been amazing. You know, we went into action um, right away as this was unfolding. Um, We were following what was happening with, um, you know, getting guidance from uh, the CDC, the Department of Public Health, uh, DDS. Uh, DCF, DEMAS, uh, you know, as all of the, this was rolling out, you know, everybody was uh, trying to do their best to give guidance. Um, we took a uh, an early stance to choose to follow what was happening uh, with the nursing homes. Uh, many of our homes are ICF, uh, intermediate care facilities, so they're under the same uh, protocols as nursing homes. So we immediately um, uh, uh, both... Pro- you know, thinking about how do we protect the people we're serving as well as our staff. And so we did a a rapid education about what was coming our way. We uh, tried to order as much PPE uh, as we could uh, to be uh, prepared. That uh, has served us well. It's been rolling in, um, you know, over the time. So we've been able to ensure that our staff anywhere where there has been uh, either staff or uh, participants who have tested positive, we've had the uh, PPE in place uh, to be able to keep everybody safe. And Barry, um, you mentioned for those who tested positive. So what happens if one of the residents tests po- positive for COVID? I mean, how do you handle that situation? Because it's hard to socially distance in these group homes. It, it absolutely is. And depending on the facility, it uh, depends on how we handle it. We've gotten excellent guidance from uh, the Department of Public Health. Um, the epidemiologist there has uh, been in contact both with our human resource department as well as our uh, medical staff. Our head nurse uh, has been uh, our point of contact uh, with them, giving uh, the staff whatever kind of protocols need to be in place uh, given that situation. So in the homes where it has happened um, so far, um, Knockwood, we have been able to isolate uh, our participants who have uh, become positive, and as we have gotten better uh, at understanding and dealing with this, we've also been able to um, isolate um, staff who have needed to be, you know, out of the program and or uh, ensuring that minimal uh, contact is happening. So it has been rough. I, I don't want to, you know, um, 
make it sound like it's been easy. Every home, uh, because these are homes, is different. Every uh, layout is different. Um, so that has taken some finesse in order to, to make this happen. But, uh, you know, safety has been paramount and the ability to um, distance and isolate, uh, you know, as with anybody, uh, plays out in these homes as well. So we've really had to, to scramble to make that happen. But we have. Um, and every Barry, home where... Oh. And Barry, when we talk about uh, your residents, uh, your clients that are in these group homes, we heard uh, Jim Welsh mention earlier, for many of them, routine is important. And the fact that they're not able to go to work or go to particular programming, that can be tough for them, especially. So how are you maybe using technology uh, to help them still be connected outside in the community, whether it's with their, their, their family or with a, a program where they might still be able to interact? Yep, FaceTime, Zoom, Google are all our friends. Um, depending on the technology that people have, uh, their you know parents, guardians, loved ones have depends on how we make contact. Um, it, you know, early uh, we ordered as uh, many tablets as we could to ensure that every home has a couple of tablets, which has allowed for that connection uh, with ease. We wanted to make the um, the screens big enough so that people could uh, have a sense of uh, connection, you know, much better than a, a small phone uh, type of screen. Uh, in some cases, we are, we're fortunate enough to, to be able to give uh, family or loved ones who didn't have uh, the connectivity or the, the uh, ability to have that technology at home, those devices in order to stay connected uh, with their loved ones. So, you're absolutely right. It's really important um, to have both routine uh, as well as connection. So within the homes, we've been organizing schedules, activities, um, again, similar to, to all of us who have um, family or you know loved ones at home, finding both uh, useful uh, things to be doing, um, fun things to be doing, uh, you know, has been that. So whether our participants are going outdoors and doing some gardening, whether they're, um, you know, we've become very familiar with lots of different apps that continue to do skill development. Um, you know, many of our participants are, you know, constantly having to do fine, you know, motor skills, communication skills, all those kinds of things. So we're able to work mm -hmm. on um, whatever their goals might be, but also bring out old-fashioned, you know, board games and puzzles and, you know, you name it, we have to be creative in order to do it. Um, but it, it really is important, uh, as you mentioned, to keep routine, keep busy, keep connected. You're hearing Barry Simon on the phone, president and CEO of Oak Hill. It's the largest pri private provider of services to people with disabilities uh, with 70 group homes across Connecticut. Also with us on Zoom is Jim Welsh, lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut. You can join us too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Brooke's calling in. Uh, Brooke, you're on the show. Uh, what's your What's your comment? Hi, I just wanted to, um, I'm also uh, an employee of the Kennedy Center, and I think that the, uh, as a whole, the um, field is doing really good work to just keep our individuals comfortable, but I think it's really important for, um, for everyone to know that the disability community is here. We have a presence. Um, prior to this epidemic, we were kind of invisible, and now we're even more invisible, 
And so I think it's really important for this discussion to be happening. Brooke, when you say that uh, prior to the pandemic, this community was invisible, but now more invisible, uh, tell us what you mean. Well, I mean, just in the news, you hear about PPE kits and the shortage that they have in hospitals or nurse nursing homes, excuse me, but you never hear about people in residential group homes or people with disabilities or the kids that are home from school that, you know, need this kind of support. You never hear about that stuff. Mm. Well, Brooke, thank you uh, for calling into the show. Uh, Jim Welsh from Disability Rights Connecticut, did you want to respond to Brooke's point? Uh, Yeah, I think that, you know, I can agree with that in part, but also I think that, you know, the movement of folks with uh, intellectual disability to community settings certainly has been a good thing in, in terms of the presence and being known locally to your, your local public health, your local uh, government as well. Because, you know, now, you know, now these days I, I can, I go back to the pre-Mansfield training school days and people have a presence and participation in the community, work at the grocery stores. So there's at least at that level, uh, people aren't uh, uh, as, as much shuttered away someplace. They're in our, People are with disabilities are in our communities, living and working and socializing and going to community events. That's that's a good thing. Um, and I think just just to, to go on that, you know, people with disabilities do have rights. There are historical biases. It's one thing to say the law says you can't discriminate on the basis of disability. And in Connecticut, that's constitutional. That's a constitutional amendment from 1984 that says people cannot discriminate on the basis of mental or physical disability. Giving content to that in this situation is, is the challenge with some historical biases and discrimination. Uh, Barry Simon, who's also with us on the phone, uh, did you also want to respond to Brooke, Brooke's point uh, as someone, again, uh, you've got 70 group homes across the state and there are needs that need to be met. What, do you, what else do you need from the state to help you do that? Yeah, so uh, you know when it, when it comes to saying uh, first responder, you know our our staff who have been absolutely courageous in in dealing with this, you know, are uh, on the front line. They are the first uh, responders for the people we're serving. They have been the ones, uh, you know, who have been there to uh, keep people out of the uh, emergency rooms and traditional medical field. But the reality is, is that we do have uh, situations where you know there is COVID that has come into various programs throughout the state. Um, you know, we are a part of the healthcare field um, that is providing that. Um, but the reality that Brooke pointed out, you know, we have gone 14 years without any rate increases from the state. And, you know, the, the positive that can come out of this is that, you know, I would say that our elected officials have begun to really uh, realize how important we are uh, to the healthcare system and how important our services are to make sure they're here now, that they are um, paid attention to, and that when we come out of this, um, the hope is that we, you know, we will have the get the attention um, that we've been, you know, asking for for all these years. Barry, we know that uh, workers within hospital settings are deemed essential healthcare workers, uh, so they receive priority testing uh, for COVID-19. But what about your workers in these group homes? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and that that would be a great example of, you know, how we have been, uh, you know, a little bit forgotten. Uh, You know, if we did have access to priority testing, you know, uh, an example would be when we have a staff who displays symptoms, 
uh, we don't know whether it's COVID or whether it's a cold. And so you immediately have to assume that it is COVID and you then have to do all the tracing that goes on, take uh, any staff contact that have had contact, you know, off the schedule. Um, it, you know, creates a, a bit of chaos within the system. So if we were deemed uh, essential healthcare, then we would have priority access to testing. We would have um, access to um, some other benefits like daycare and the things that are um, important to our ability to maintain consistent uh, staffing within these programs. So, you know, we are, we, you know, we've been deemed essential workers. We just haven't been deemed essential healthcare workers. Jim Welsh from Disability Rights Connecticut, if you, if you could pick up on that, you mentioned uh, briefly earlier in the show about a guidance from the state. I believe Disability Rights Connecticut has written a letter to uh, the governor and the attorney general, again, reiterating the rights of uh, the t- disabled in our state. And so what do we need to be hearing from our state leaders and during this pandemic to make sure that people with disabilities are treated equally? Yeah, I think, you know, we did write uh, on April 2nd to the uh, the governor and attorney general, and we want to make sure that uh, the rights of persons with disabilities, uh, intellectual disabilities, psychiatric or mental health and physical disabilities are uh, strictly observed during during this crisis. And uh, and that there is there are systems in place that provide care. They need attention. Those systems need attention. Need the need the funding to make sure, uh, as 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 Mr. Simon says, this workforce is essential because these are folks you know these folks who depend on support staff for for all acti- for many activities of daily living. So we wanted to emphasize the the legal rights of, of of people in Connecticut with disabilities, and also to make sure that in in the context of executive orders implementing the declarations of public health and emergency preparedness. That, that the rights of people with disabilities are are forefront. Um, the state, you know, has there's this is not totally new. I mean, years ago, uh, 2010, in response to the uh, swine flu and bird flu, uh, created a white paper. Uh, it's still available on the Department of Health Public Health website. It talks about uh, the, these kinds of issues, and you know, with four bullets, probably the last bullet, the most important, be applied in a the healthcare decisions and the allocation of resources be applied in a non-discriminatory manner. We just want to make sure that, that that historical biases and discrimination based on someone's disability and not on their their not on, really on their health um, are are scrupulously observed. Um, for example, if someone has a lower oxygen saturation than the norm. They shouldn't be discriminated against if they're if we got to the point of rationing, which we hopefully won't, mm. ventilators because they've had they they're not tested or they're not showing a, a, a higher oxygen saturation level when they they don't normally have that because of the disability. We heard from uh, Doris via an email. She writes, as a mother who's immunocompromised, disabled, with children also immunocompromised and with disabilities, these are definitely trying times, but we're used to trying times and struggling for human equity. Uh, One of her sons was sick for 16 days. His pediatrician felt it was a false negative for COVID-19. Doris also has an organization, Keep the Promise Coalition, which is attempting to find ways to reach out to members and 
residents of group homes. Uh, technology for many is not accessible, let alone available. And so Barry Simon with Oak Hill, you mentioned earlier, trying to get technology uh, to help uh, some of these residents stay connected uh, with their families and loved ones. Uh, but is that accessible at all of your group homes? Yes, yeah, so we we have made it uh, and put it into all of our group homes. Uh, we also have our um, assistive technology team uh, at our uh, NEAT Center, the uh, New England Assistive Technology Center. Um, we've created an assistive technology hotline uh, that people can access if you uh, go to our website, oakhillct.org. Um, you can get the uh, contact information there. Uh, but we have definitely uh, opened up and tried to help uh, as many people as possible, um, you know, giving support around technology and helping, you know, with our AT specialists, uh, you know, really trying to meet the needs of, and with every, you know, with every single person, with every single family, it could be slightly different. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's really important to have a, an AT specialist uh, who can help uh, anybody who has special needs. Uh, Renee is calling in from New Milford. Uh, Renee, quickly, what's your question or comment? Um, I've worked in the field, both schools and private sector, and I do appreciate the rights of the disabled. My question is, and I think this goes across the board, what are the rights of the workers if they elect not to come to work and expose themselves? Is it imminent dismissal? Is it legal? Mm. Renee, great question. Thank you for that call. Uh, First, uh, Jim Welsh, I'll go to you. Excuse, excuse me, Lucy. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to really opine on that. I, I'm not an employer of this of this workforce, and and our focus has been on on individuals with disabilities, um, if deemed essential. And uh, I think certainly a, a worker could have rights because uh, the employer isn't providing adequate uh, protective equipment, etc. But if deemed essential and otherwise not compromised. Uh, I, I would think they'd be expected to report to work unless they had some other basis not not to report to work. But that that really is not my area. Barry Simon, as a president and CEO of Oak Hill, how would you handle that? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know, Jim is right on. Is is that you know we have um, you know we have the PPE available for our staff. Um, they have um, uh, by far um, for the most part all uh, shown up and uh, been willing to, you know, jump in and provide the care and coverage for the people that we serve. But I will say that where um, people do have, uh, you know, uh, um, if they're immune compromised or that, you know, they have a particular health issue, or in this case, you know, a combination of health issue and age, um, we have made uh, accommodations uh, for them. And so, you know, that really does become a partnership between the, the employee and the employer uh, to try to figure out what's reasonable. Um, to date, uh, you know, we have not had anybody who has just simply chosen not to show, um, but has not been in one of those, um, you know, categories, you know, that I, that I outlined. So our HR department um, tries to work with each individual as that comes up trying to figure out whether it's uh, an employee who has the ability to provide supports uh, to the agency from home or whether it might be a a furlough situation where, yes, they're choosing for whatever reason uh, not to come in, um, but that it's not because we haven't provided, uh, you know, PPE or given them a, a safe working environment.
Barry Simon, again, is president and CEO of Oak Hill. Uh, Barry, we thank you for calling in today on Where We Live. Well, thank you for having me. appreciate it. Uh, again, my, Lucy Nalbethanchel on the phone with me, or actually via Zoom, is Jim Welsh, who is a lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut. Uh, coming up after the break, so what policies are in place in Connecticut to protect the rights of disabled residents who must be hospitalized? We talked to the Center for Public Integrity about their investigation of state policies, and we'll take your calls too, 888-720-9677. Also, this note, Connecticut Public Radio has canceled its spring membership drive to keep you informed about COVID-19 and its impact. But your support is still critical during this time. You can support this program and all the news and information on Connecticut Public Radio by going to wmpr.org slash donate. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Uh, today, uh, we've been talking about uh, the rights of adults living with disabilities and what it means uh, to uh, be dealing with this pandemic, especially if they live in group homes away from their families uh, where they're not able to even visit them. Uh, right now, joining us by phone is a reporter for the Center for Public Integrity. Uh, her investigative piece looked at how state policies would ration care for people with disabilities. Uh, Liz Esley White is on the phone again. Uh, Liz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So what launched your investigative story? Um, yeah, so uh, we're interested at the center in looking at coronavirus um, through the ways it may be impacting people differently um, and inequality. And um, I, I saw that um, the federal government had um, basically been petitioned to investigate in Alabama where the policy um, at the time said that people with severe mental retardation would not be good candidates for ventilators if they ran short. Um, and this is obviously a, a pretty on-its-face discriminatory policy. Um, but I wondered if there were other states that had similar policies um, so I, I managed to find 30 of the uh, policies, and um, we found that 25 of those had um, not all um, intellectual disability provisions like Alabama's, but provisions of the sort that disability advocates had already decried um, in their federal complaints um, about a handful of states. Um, so 25 out of 30 were problematic, um, according to the, the rubric laid out by disability advocates. Um, and then another 20 states didn't have any policies or we're still working on them. And that in and of itself is also an issue for people with disabilities because they um, fear that doctors may, um, in the absence of a policy, rely on their own bias in making these decisions. So tell us more, because we are here in Connecticut, of the states that you looked at, this guidance of how uh, doctors uh, should, um, again, think about when somebody with a disability comes in during an, a pandemic like now uh, versus someone who doesn't have a disability. Like, what are some of the questions and concerns that come up that disability advocates are really worried that the person with a disability uh, will be, will be uh, put aside or their needs will not be seen as equal to someone else? else. Yeah, uh, so all the policies that we looked at are um, really applying to the situation when 
we're running out of ventilators or when resources are scarce. So there's not enough ICU beds, there's not enough ventilators. Um, so how do you decide who gets them? And that's obviously a, a dramatic decision that they've they've had to make in Italy. Um, it, it sounds like there were some places in the U.S. where this may have been happening in the last couple of weeks, but hopefully, um, you know, we have expanded hospital capacity now to the point that, uh, and flattened the curve enough now that, um, you know, we won't be making a lot of these decisions um, in coming weeks, although, mm-hmm. you know, maybe as it hits more rural areas, there will be some pain points and hot spots. Um, but basically, we need to think about it in case it does happen. And um, uh, doctors are used to making decisions about, you know, is this um, treatment going to be futile? Is this person going to die anyway? Um, but they're not used to making decisions about how do I weigh these two lives against each other? Um, not just considering my own patient, but the lives of a group of patients. Um, and so that's where these these um, policies come into place and where um, people with disabilities in states like Washington, for example, where the policy takes into effect, um, takes into account cognition, um, are really worried that they will be seen as less than and their quality of life will be judged and they will be put at the back of the line. And as far as Connecticut, Liz, what is Connecticut's guidance? Yeah, Connecticut has a uh, kind of, it's called the crisis standards of care, which is the you know term for these policies. But their, their guidance is rather broad, actually. It kind of lays out some different ethical frameworks um, and cites some other states' policies, um, but it, it leaves it fairly vague and kind of says, you know, hospitals need to work more to, um, you know, nail down what exactly you're going to do and try to be uniform on this. But it doesn't outline this is exactly what doctors need to do. It does say, however, that, um, you know, rationing should apply, and this is a direct quote, should apply equally to withholding and withdrawing life treatments based on the principle that withholding those drawing care are ethically equivalent. Um, and it, it says, um, you know, we encourage reallocation, a direct quote, take a resource from one patient and give it to a patient with a better prognosis or greater need, unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and with some of the um, other states that it cited, um, it seems to really leave the door open and, and underscore the ability of hospitals to take a ventilator away from a patient who, you know, uh, may be disabled or even relying on it in daily life and give it to someone who could have a better um, chance at survival um, based on, you know, a, a hospital deciding that. So, um, you know, it's kind of modeled on these um, policies from Minnesota and New York that explicitly say, we will take a ventilator from, from you if you show up to the hospital with it as an acute care patient and give it to someone else if there's a shortage and if they have a greater need. Uh, Jim Welsh, who's with us on Zoom, lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut. Uh, what's your reaction uh, to this investigation by the Center for Public Integrity, as well as, uh, again, the guidance that Liz says is very vague uh, for Connecticut hospitals? Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, we're part of a, the National Disability Rights Network. So all the lawyers uh, and investigators communicate weekly on a, on a call to see what's happening in other states, what uh, remedial actions are taken, uh, like complaints with the Office of Civil Rights, which I think led to the, the Health and Human Services issuing some guidance to uh, all states, which are, are Medicaid providers of services on, on discrimination. But I, I agree. There's there's a 
the document that actually I referred to earlier, um, it's the same document, this white paper on uh, standards of care in, an, in a pandemic or epidemic um, is, you know, it says non-discrimination, you know, that non-discrimination is important, but there's not a lot of content there. Mm -hmm. and, and I haven't in the executive orders uh, of, of Governor Lamont, executive order 7A through 7Z now, I believe, there's not a specific uh, reference to uh, kind of bringing that out a little further. That's a that's a 2010 standard of care meant to be an iterative document that is to continue the conversation, but there's not a lot after that document. Um, but by example, uh, New Jersey has, uh, you know, gone out through the governor and their commissioner of public health and said, you know, their criteria, all patients who are eligible for intensive care or critical care services during ordinary circumstances remain eligible. And there are no exclusion criteria based on age, disability, or other factors. So that's getting a little more to the content I think we'd like to see uh, come out of Connecticut and advising hospitals because yeah, you do get subject to individual biases. Uh, oh, this person is, uh, you know, prof has a profound intellectual disability. What could their quality of life be? And that is not, that has no place in the decision-making. It would be very scary to get into that situation where we're rationing uh, life-preserving care, but it, and if that happens, it needs to be fair and disability cannot be an exclusion criteria in that. And I think mm -hmm. that's that kind of policy needs to be a forefront to guide uh, health care. Uh, Jim, you mentioned the many executive orders that Governor Lamont has put out since the start of this, about a month of, of executive orders now. I mean, what's your reaction to, I believe there was one executive order uh, that, uh, I guess, would protect or prevent litigation against healthcare workers during this pandemic? Uh, say a situation arose where uh, the rights of a disabled person uh, were not held up uh, with for hospital um, care, and if a family or organization uh, wanted um, you know, to call attention to this? I mean, is it worrisome that you have orders such as these that might protect workers if they're, they were liable for, for some type of wrongdoing? Um, again, I think that, you know, uh, in some regards, it's like the Good Samaritan laws that, mm -hmm. uh, that protect folks. Uh, there, it is regarded for, their, for negligence, you know, mm. provide immunity. As I understand the, that particular executive order, for gross negligence or a deliberate indifference or intentional discrimination. So certainly uh, that's, those are not foreclosed. Those kinds of litigation or legal actions court are not foreclosed. It does uh, lend immunity and it fairly narrowly drafted. And I think that actually uh, the governor addressed it in two executive orders. He corrected a little, some of the language a little bit in the second one. Um, Yes, it's a, a little bit of concern about vindicating uh, individuals' rights. Um, we are in a pandemic, um, uh, but I do think that where there's uh, where there's been a demonstration of gross negligence or deliberate indifference, it does not foreclose legal action uh, where people where people are simply uh, uh, negligent. Perhaps they get the immunity. This is a this is a crisis, but not for the on the other stand. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Jim, for people, again, who are listening and if they have concerns about the care their loved one may be receiving, is there a number to call? What would you recommend for them? Um, I would recommend, they, again, they can call uh, DRCT. Um, 
You'd think I'd have the number right here, right, Lucy? <laughs> <laughs> I put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. Um, but our, our, our phone is, uh, uh, our, we have a toll-free line, 800-842-7303. Um, that's our toll-free line. Or our, our, our general number, 860-297-4300. But we also do maintain an extensive uh, list of resources on our website. We post our communications with public officials there. Um, and again, we're trying to keep this issue moving forward and, and, and make sure the nuances that, that can lead to bias and discrimination are addressed and addressed at the highest level. Uh, Liz, I'll go back to you again. Liz Esley White, a reporter for the Center for Public Integrity. Uh, since your investigation came out, are you seeing states being a little more uh, proactive and, and coming up with a guidance that takes into account uh, what disability advocates are, are asking for? Yeah, I, I think that there are there is more awareness. Um, and as your as other others have noted that um, HHS Office of Civil Rights did come out and say, you know, you can't discriminate against people with disabilities in these policies. Um, I think one of the things that uh, disability advocates are still worried about, though, is some states, it seems like, are coming out and saying, you know, we won't discriminate against people with disabilities, um, and, and this policy doesn't do that. But then you look at the policy, and there's, there's really no guidance for physicians and hospitals on how exactly not to do that when they're making that mm. decision. Um, and so it's just kind of vague, like, don't do it. Um, but, uh, you know, state advocates are asking states like Massachusetts and some other places to be more specific about um, how will these de decisions get made and, um, you know, just providing more kind of guidelines to help um, physicians not, you know, stray too far or, or, or take into account a stereotype unwittingly. Well, Thank you, Liz Esley White, for calling in today, a reporter for the Center for Public Integrity. Also, Jim Welsh on Zoom today, lead investigator at Disability Rights Connecticut. Uh, today's show produced by Tess Terrible, Carmen Baskoff on the phones. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>